Okay, Jack. Thank you for coming. For people who don't know who you are, uh, you are a former KGB sleeper agent who worked for the KGB for 10 years spying on America and eventually worked with the FBI. Correct. So how does a guy go about mm. being recruited to the KGB? Uh, unlike the CIA where you can actually apply, the KGB, you could not. Uh, they would recruit you. They, I wouldn't have known where the, where the office was. Uh, they weren't in the phone book. And anyway, I would never have thought of applying because, you know, from, you know, I, like everybody else or like most people, you know, spy, spy stories are very interesting. We had our own spy stories. We had our own James Bond, uh, communist James Bond. Uh, so, but that was all in the realm of fiction or in the, in the realm of adventure. That wouldn't be me. I was going to be a college professor. That was my, that was my dream. But that changed one day when uh, the KGB knocked on the door. <laughs> um, it was in my third year studying chemistry, sitting in my dorm room on a Saturday, doing a little bit of studying. And <clears throat> in those days, um, the uh, almost all the students that could would go home over the weekend. I couldn't, and it was too far. So I was alone in my room. My roommate wasn't there. And uh, that's interesting to note because the person who knocked on the door knew this, knew that, must have known it. Uh, the person also knew which room, under which, behind which door to find me. There were no nameplates on the door. So after many years, it occurred to me uh, I, ha I had a, a, a neighbor in the next, in the next uh, uh, room. There was a Russian exchange student with whom I had some interactions and talk back and forth. I, I guarantee you he was the one who fingered me. Why do you think, why do you think they chose you? Um, I was, as, as you probably know, in those days, the Stasi had uh, files on everybody. And uh, they apparently gave access to those files to the KGB, or maybe they gave the KGB some, some hints and looked, you, you want to talk to this guy. If you systematically went through files for students, you know, the, the future intellectual elite of the Communist Party, the society, and so forth, I was a standout. You would shake this a little bit, and, and my file would come out for, for two reasons. Um, I was an active party member. I was active in the communist youth movement of the university. But the, the standout uh, entry was that I had just received the uh, Karl Marx scholarship. Oh, wow. Karl Marx scholarship was very rarely given. Uh, it was limited to 100 concurrent holders in the country. 100 concurrent. In other words, if you get a new, new one to go in, somebody else has to be out. And uh, uh, so they were looking, like the CIA, they're looking for the best of the best. And I, I was a good candidate on paper, right? So the fellow, I get this knock on the door, and uh, <clears throat> we had a, a custom at uh, college, at, at, at the dorm, that uh, you know, when you went to visit another student in another room, you knocked and you walk in. The knocking was just telling them that somebody's coming. 
uh, after the knock, the door didn't open, so I knew this would be a stranger. I say, come on in, and indeed, it was a stranger. The fellow was entirely unimpressive. He was short. He had his, his right arm in, in a cast, and he had, he was just not likable. He was one of the few KGB guys that I didn't like. He was German. So right off the bat, I figured he was probably Stasi. Uh, partic- when you say Stasi, what do you what does that mean? East German Secret Police. Okay. <clears throat> Staatssicherheit. That's an abbreviation for Security Police. Okay. Okay. Um, and then he came up. He he asked me uh, whether I am Albrecht Dietrich. That was my name. And I said yes. What can I do for you? And then he came up with the the dumbest statement I've ever heard a KGB agent give in my entire 10 years working with a couple of dozen KGB agents. He said, well, you know, I'm, I'm from, the, from Carl Zeiss Jena. That was a firm that was very well known in not, not only in Germany, but in the world that made high-quality optical instruments. And then uh, <clears throat> he said, you know, I just want to find out, do you have any, what, what are your plans after you graduate? Now, the reason it was dumb, because in those days, um, <laughs> the entire time while East Germany was in existence, when you gradu- graduated from college, you didn't have the freedom to choose. You were assigned. So in other words, uh, companies did not recruit. It never happened. That guy didn't even know how his own country worked. <laughs> All right, so when he said that, I knew immediately that uh, he's making that up and he's probably secret police. Now, um, I wasn't at all concerned that this would be bad. It, it had to be something, let's say, interesting. Mm. So we talked a while, you know, I played along with him, some, you know, small, small talk and, you know, what it's like to study chemistry, which was... It was pretty hard because this is uh, one of the subjects where you have lab. Mm. So you spent... They want you to make poisons? Every, every, no, every afternoon, after you have your lessons and your seminars, every afternoon you spend four hours in the lab. Then you have to write lab reports. And then you have self-study. So my day started at 6 and it ended at 10. There was no play during the week. On Saturday the morning was lab. Saturday afternoon, that's when I went for recreation. I went to a soccer game, and and then I went dancing, trying to pick up girls in a student club. I, I usually went home by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was not as uh, uh, as charming as I think I am now. <laughs> Too late. Uh, and I was I was very shy actually. Still, anyway. So that that's what we were talking about, uh, and. Uh, then he abruptly abruptly changed his uh, his tune. Uh, he did a 180 and he said, you know, I got to admit to you, you know, this was just a, a way to come in here. You know, I, I made that up. I'm really working for the government. I could have made him uh, uh, uncomfortable by asking what part of the government. I didn't want to do it. You know, I just wanted to hear what he has to say. <clears throat> and uh, he, he came right out with it. He said, well, can you... Uh, could you imagine one day to work for the government? And I said, yeah, but not as a chemist. 
So, do you think maybe they wanted you to work as a chemist in the beginning? Like maybe you make poisons and stuff uh, like that. You know, my my best friend from college uh, actually did work uh, for the Stasi as a chemist. Uh, he wound up uh, the f- f- as the head of the forgery department, and and he told me that uh, the passports, West German passports, he he forged. He they sold to the KGB. It is quite likely that he made a passport that I used to travel with. Oh wow! <laughs> so yes, uh, um, this is. I think he really recruited me uh, because of what happened next. He recruited me for something not science, mm. uh, because he was he was a German who was a volunteer um, collaborator with the, with the KGB. Wow! Right? <clears throat> I didn't know this when he said government. I thought it was still. <clears throat> Uh, secret police, East, East German secret police. So, bottom line is, he he had asked the question he came to ask me for, even though not in so many words, and I answered him probably exactly, gave him the answer that he wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he invited me for um, uh, to have a meal. When I say dinner, it's inaccurate. It's all in Germany that big meal is at lunchtime. Mm. So in in the most expensive restaurant in uh, uh, in 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 town, I still remember what I had. It was my favorite meal. So, but as I walk in there, he was already sitting there in the back at a table, and uh, there was another man at the table, which made me a little bit cautious because in those days it was not unusual for strangers to share table tables because there were very often not enough seats. So I I just approached the table. Uh, slowly, but uh, my man, who never, by the way, gave me his name, not even a cover name, uh, he came up to me and walked me to the table and he said, uh, I would like to introduce you to Herman. We're working with our Soviet comrades. Mm-hmm. So it was clear that it rhymes, that's why I'm going to say it. One, two, three, I was with the KGB. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Masterworks. Did you guys know one of the most brazen art heists in history happened only three years ago in Russia? A man named Denis Chuprikov calmly walked into a crowded Moscow gallery, lifted a million-dollar painting right off the wall, and walked right out the front door. Of course, this didn't end well for Dennis, who was caught after trying to sell the painting online for only $37,000. Now, I know we've all thought about how valuable art can be. Few can imagine holding a piece of canvas that's worth millions of dollars. But what if there was a way for you to get a piece of all this crazy art money and it was backed by the SEC? I'm talking about Masterworks, the first platform where you can be an investor in legendary artwork from the likes of Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. They buy these incredible paintings and put them on their platform. From there, members can buy shares, with each being an actual investment in the painting securitized by the SEC. Since 2017, they've sold three paintings, with each returning over 30% IRR to investors. Although I legally have to add, past performance does not guarantee future results. But still, 30%? That's crazy. And now, Concrete subscribers can skip the wait list to join over 350,000 people on Masterworks. Just click the link in the description box below. Back to the podcast. Wow. So so my 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 German introducer said goodbye, never That was saw, it. Never saw him, no, never heard from him again. And from that point on on I was working with Harman. Wow. And it was a uh, um, 15 months uh, getting to know each other. Uh-huh. We talked about life. We talked about what what it 
At this point, it became clear that uh, you know uh, they were thinking of preparing me for espionage mm. in West Germany. How old were you? Uh, just at uh, that time, I was uh, twenty-one or one between twenty-one and twenty-two. Wow. And that was interesting. Uh, we, we, we talked about, you know, the espionage, about uh, what's going on in the world. Uh, I, and I, 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 from, from early on, I showed my, how honest I am. You know, I told him about some weaknesses that I thought I had, shyness with the girls, stuff like that. Um, and then he started giving me some tasks. Uh, so, uh, for instance, he would uh, drive me to a building and point to it and say, uh, see if you can find out who, what organization is in there. There was no nameplate, no nothing. Uh, so I had to, like, uh, you know, make friends with some people who walked out the door after, after work end, ended. Uh, I also one time was asked to knock on the door of a, <clears throat> of a family and have a talk with somebody who opens the door to find out about their relative in the West. Uh, so that's uh, uh, that's sort of false flag interviews. So I pretended to be a sociology student and came with a uh, um, with a survey. I asked them, "Could could you answer some survey questions?" Mm-hmm. Pretty innocent, but sounded good. And as we were talking, somehow I find a way to sort of talk about West Germany and, and make it into a little bit of a social conversation. And you wouldn't believe how easily people volunteer stuff that that you want to get out of them. So I, I didn't like doing this because, you know, my shyness uh, got sort of in the way, but I couldn't fail. You know, mm. failure was not, not an option for me. So um, over, in, and, and I believe, uh, you know, this Herman guy, um, eventually determined that I am a really good candidate. Mm. So he uh, he got in touch with Berlin, the, the headquarters of uh, KGB in East Germany, and they invited me for a three-week uh, visit to Berlin. That was my first, uh, you know, trip as an as a would-be agent because I wasn't I was given uh, a code name, a code phrase, a time and a place where we would meet. And so I would go find that place in Berlin and meet uh, my new friend who introduced himself as Boris. Uh, I worked with Boris for about three weeks. He gave me tasks to do, and he also gave me West German literature to read. Hmm. Der Spiegel, der Stern, uh, you know the things that were forbidden. You 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 were not allowed to have them, and almost nobody did. So that uh, made me feel good because you know I, I was already I had I had one foot outside the law, and uh, right. but and, and you know having always been a contrarian, wanting to be different from everybody else, that that that, that was very uh, uh, flattering. How long how long did your spy training? last with them and then at what point how long did it take for you to be deployed to the united states okay so the base training was two years that was their standard training period uh i i was already working as a um, um, assistant professor in college when 
they finally made me the offer. On the last day in Berlin, I got the offer. And within a month, I quit the university and uh, moved to Berlin. By the way, that will be interesting to to know. Uh, in those days, uh, in East Germany, um, good apartments and nice houses to live in were where. So here I am, you know, I'm now in the KGB. I go to Berlin. I would expect the key to a nice apartment. <laughs> so I meet my, my new handler, the boss that I had for the two years in Berlin, and uh, his, his name was Nikolai. Uh, interestingly, he was Ukrainian. And we talk in his car, and then he says, I have a task for you. That's your first task. Find yourself a, a place to stay. Now, he knew, and I knew, everybody knew that all apartments and houses were under the control of the government. There was a waiting list up to 10 years to get get an apartment for a couple with a child. It was impossible to just go and rent an apartment. So I could have failed. This was a pass-fail task. Mm -hmm. If I can't find an apartment... If I can't pl find a place to stay, they don't want me. I needed to show my ability to improvise. Yeah, you know, so I, I did, and uh, I, I, I figured the further away from Berlin I get, the more of a chance I have. I, I drove, I, I took the city train to the last stop, to a town called Akna, and knocked on doors and asked if somebody had, had a room. Eventually, I found a place. Uh, it was a, an outbuilding. It was made out of brick, but it ha and it had two rooms. One had a bed and a chair, and the other one has a, had a wood-burning stove and running cold water. And that's where I lived for six months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so the training, after six months, uh, I think Nikolai determined, yeah, this guy is a keeper. So he gave me a key to an apartment. <laughs> so... Uh, the training oh, nice. in Berlin wa was uh, two years, and I was going to be, depart be departing for West Germany after two years. Um, one of the things I was required to do, everybody, they told me everybody has to, has to learn a foreign language. Mm -hmm. All right? And they gave me a choice. I said, well, I pick English. English was easy for me uh, in school. You know, I, I, I was straight A's without studying. And... Uh, I like with everything else. I threw myself. I gave myself a hundred percent into learning English. I, I mean, I, I became a maniac, and uh, within like eight, seven, eight months, I had enough enough of a vocabulary to be able to read English novels without a dictionary. Every word that I, when I read stuff, every new word I wrote down and I learned. It came to about a hundred words a day. I counted them. And so one day, uh, some guy from Moscow comes to visit, and he asked me, so how's your English? And I said, well, I pu pulled a book out and said, I can read that, no problem. And he said, what? All right, um, we're going to get you a tape recorder, and you just uh, tape, tape a message. You can talk about anything you want. So a week later, I get the tape recorder. I give it back to Nikolai. He sends it to Moscow. A week later, I was on a plane to Moscow because they had heard enough to think that there's a possibility that I have enough talent to uh, learn Eng American English well enough 
to have nothing but a slight accent left that can easily be explained. So uh, in Moscow, I met with a with, with a college professor who uh, a Russian who t who taught English and and a born American, and we had we talked for about two hours. And afterwards, they discussed it between the two of them, and it was uneven. The the Russian figured, nah, he can't do it. And the American, typical, typical American uh, optimism, I can teach him. So, bingo. Now, they, they had a potential asset, somebody they could, they could uh, put into the ranks of the main adversary. That's what uh, the, uh, the KGB called the United States as an illegal. So I was moved to Moscow to get another two and a half years training. And then before I, they, they could launch me with the right documentation, it took another half year. So I spent five years in training. Wow. Yeah. What was the perception uh, once you were in the U.S. for so many years undercover? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you had obviously a preconceived notion of what the U.S. was from, you know, being overseas was it was it accurate and how did your perception change once you were in the US for a certain amount of time well <clears throat> you probably know half the answer of course it wasn't accurate uh, i came to the united states knowing and um, exclamation and not knowing what do we call air fingers right mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, knowing that uh, the united states was a dangerous enemy and had to be defeated uh, to because the U.S. and NATO was in the way of the master plan that, that was, you know, creating uh, the workers' paradise on Earth, you know, where there was no exploitation, there was no poverty, everybody got along. It's a pipe dream, obviously, but uh, that's what I believed in at the time. Uh, slowly, I got disabused of some of the the strongest. Uh, communist beliefs uh, when I had my first job uh, professional job at uh, MetLife as a computer programmer um, we were told in, in the east we were told there were like three types of companies that were the worst in the United States uh, it was the military industrial complex type companies uh, the uh, Wall Street investment companies and insurance companies and I started working at an insurance company. And uh, they treated us very well as workers. We were paid well. We got free lunch. And we were even like pretty much promised the total job security. And I was constantly looking for the evil bosses. You know, there were some bosses you didn't like, but there was no, there was no systematic exploitation. There was no systematic, uh, what you would call, uh, unfairness. You know, you based on your performance, you could go up the ladder and and make a lot more money. So this was all pretty good. So, so part of my ideology uh, melted away rather quickly. Um, what I was still still at heart a communist. I just uh, thought, just maybe there's a way to combine the good parts of uh, capitalism with the, with the the dream of a communist egalitarian society and and get everybody happy. Uh, that was actually a theory that was uh, called convergence theory. It was developed by social democrat parties in, in Europe. Uh, and it was popular for a while. And I, I thought of 
thought that that might be a way out. Anyway, um, so we were misled. But here's an here's an interesting statement. It is much easier to believe a lie if it has a kernel of truth. When you know something, when you can relate to something that is true, then everything else that you're being told that you don't know about, you think is true too. Uh, example. Uh, we knew for a fact that in West Germany there were some ex-Nazis who made it all the way up to the top in the government. We called them neo-Nazis. Uh, and, uh, at one point, uh, the West German Chancellor, by the name of Kurt Georg Kiesinger, was, uh, had been a member of the Nazi Party. Uh, and the head of the, uh, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, which is the equivalent of the, the CIA, was a fellow by the name of Reinhard Galen, who, uh, under Hitler, was in charge of uh, espionage on the Eastern Front. So we knew that there were Nazis in the West German government. We figured, you know, they, they would eventually come attack us and uh, uh, and unite Germany and sort of recreate the Third Reich with the support of, of, of the United States. And that was the reason why, given why East Germany built the wall in 1961. And I believed in that too. You know, these Nazis, they were going to come over and, you know, conquer us. So, um, and another lie, we didn't know that there was a kernel of truth, but we clearly didn't know that it was a lie, that uh, the fact that the standard of living in the West was significantly higher than in the East was explained to us that, you know, the imperialists, the evil imperialists were stealing all the wealth from the third world countries, like uh, natural resources, fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. Uh, uh, I I had not really shed that belief because uh, I had no information to the contrary. Um, so now vice versa. Um, so fundamentally, in, uh, one more thing here, fundamentally nobody in the East, n- no high-level communist parties, Members, no, no, uh, no uh, um, uh, philosophers, no, uh, n- not not the folks in the KGB really knew how the United States functioned. Didn't know. Were ignorant because clearly they believed in their own lies. And and here's the problem: if you want to deal with an enemy and you don't know how they how it, how the system works, uh, you are, you know, you you're missing a joker in your deck. Uh, vice versa. Uh, the CIA had no clue what was going on in in in, in the uh, in the USSR. And uh, I give you an, a very interesting example. I met the fellow uh, who was in charge in the CIA for the East for Eastern Europe, all of Eastern Europe. So he was a direct report to William Colby, and uh, he wrote a book. And in his book is the 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 most the most uh, telling sentence and so, sort of funny uh, goes as follows. I, I'm copying. I'm, I'm citing from from memory. Um, and so I sat in my office. He writes. I sat in my office and watched the only credible source of information uh, about the Soviet Union, uh, CNN. And this was in the context of uh, you know what happened when the Soviet Union fell fell apart. Nobody nobody knew that. No, the same way when the wall came down, uh, 
The CIA had no clue what, what was going to happen. Neither did the Stasi. Nobody. It, there was stuff that just happened. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, the CIA was caught by surprise. Wow. So it was there was a lack of understanding, uh, cultural understanding, uh, and uh, an economic understanding, and it had a lot to do with being lazy and not really trying to get into it and and, and believing in your own prejudice. Mm. Going back to what we were talking about before, you said that during your time there was maybe a max of ten. Yes, there were ten. Ten. Uh, undercover KGB agents in the USA. I don't know if they if they made it. Mm-hmm. They were there were ten that were trained, right, and sent out. It is quite likely that quite a few of them act, actually had a abor- had to abort. When when I look at the danger points that I passed, uh, there were at least a half a dozen where I could have been caught, where I could have uh, uh, blown my cover. Uh, the other guys we're faced with the same problems. It's not easy to show up and say, hey, I've always been here. Right. Right? I told you how I how I was so careful uh, with my integration in society so as to not betray the ignorance that I came here with. Mm. Now, how did Moscow, how are they able to make sure that you weren't losing sight of the grand vision of all of this, make, making sure, did they do anything to make sure that you didn't lose sight of the goal here? Because obviously it's such a long play. Like you were doing this for so long. Well, they didn't do much of anything other than that every, every two years I was back in Moscow. And I have to tell you, I also was married in Germany. I had a wife and a son. Oh, wow. So that was an anchor. You know, there was a... Uh, 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 I mean, you know, it, it's kind of hard to defect if you know, uh, if you know you, you, you're endangering uh, your family. Uh, and I wanted to go back and live with them. The other thing is, the the KGB trusted me. Uh, Their the trust appeared to have been limitless. Now, this kind of a relationship is based on trust, right? If they don't trust me, they don't send me out. And if I don't trust them, I'm not leaving. I'm not going because, you know, they promised that they would take care of me. Uh, but I had established a reputation, and I, I didn't do this on purpose. That's the way I am. Uh, I'm, I have never been afraid to uh, admit mistakes. So even during my training, there's some things that happened that were only known to me, but... I told my boss, I did this, this, and this wrong. So I guarantee you in, in, in my file there was sort of, sort of an, an entry that says he is, uh, he is uh, aggressively honest. And so they probably also didn't quite understand that over time, you know, changes will happen whether you want them or not. But I, there was no uh, an attempt made to... Um, to ideologically train me again, retrain me, or, or give give me a boost. When we in those days, uh, there was always this this uh, danger lurking about uh, potential nuclear war, and it was mostly during Reagan's presidency um, that uh, we were really concerned that, that Ronald Reagan was a madman and he would uh, he would blow up the earth. He uh, he was a Christian, 
and uh, apparently at least once he cited some some passages from Revelation, and again he has ignorance. Uh, the, the Russians uh, thought you know that uh, Reagan thought of himself as as the, the man who would be used as a as a as a tool by God to to bring about the end of the world. Revelation isn't meant that way for Christians, but you know again we didn't we didn't have any understanding of, of the Christian religion, so we we were literally very much afraid of Ronald Reagan. Now, at that point, do you think how do you think there was a number of U.S. CIA undercover spies in Moscow? No, no. Uh, maybe, um, maybe not Americans. You know, no. What American in his right mind would do what I did going to the United States? Because you know, you don't want to live in, in squalor. You don't want to live in in near poverty. Uh, that that is a that is a huge sacrifice, and on top of it, it's very difficult. It was a closed society. How do you get in there? So is the process America was different? open. Do they would, would they recruit people who are already on the inside there? Yes, to the extent they uh, uh, they had success, that's how they they did it. And the most successful ones were volunteers, were like uh, Russian uh, high level generals, even uh, members of the KGB. Who's, who uh, knocked on the door of the CIA and said, you know, I'm not happy with what's going on here. Uh, they were typically not for money. They did it f- f- uh, because they wanted to, A, uh, save the world from, from a uh, nuclear war, and B, they were pissed off at, at what was going on in, in Soviet society. Who do you think was the more elite spy agency, the KGB or the CIA? That's a good question <laughs> they were both rather ineffective in the long run uh the the united states had their most uh, I, I already said that the united states had their most success by uh, working with volunteers uh the soviet union also there's the, the the two spies that did the most damage to the united states and it caused quite a few uh um assets cia assets within the soviet union uh killed were Aldrich Ames. Uh, he was a CIA employee. Aldrich Ames was uh, actually in the in the department that spied on the Russians. So he gave away, uh, you know, information and, he, uh, and, uh, and named names. And uh, Robert Hansen, who was, had the, a similar function, counterintelligence in the FBI. Both of them did it for money. Both of them volunteered. Both of them are still alive, but they're rotting in jail. Wow. Mm-hmm. And how how was it that uh, you eventually got caught? How did you eventually get into trouble? <laughs> um, that took a long time. So, uh, dial. F- so I come here in 1978. Uh, I uh, make my way into a profession. I work at MetLife, and uh, so I'm in the country for uh, eight and a half years when I made a mistake. I had a steady girlfriend who was a citizen of Guyana. She came here illegally and at one, one, one day she 
uh, confessed to me that she Pull was thing up a little bit closer. Uh, you can you can move it to its. Well, she confessed to me that she was in the country illegally, and uh, and uh, she asked me if I could help her become a citizen. And after some analysis, I figured yeah, I could do that, uh, and it worked. So here's one illegal who made another illegal legal. Um, and but then the, the mistake was that I, I wasn't aware that this was. It's very typical for uh, West Indian ladies who want to move up. They cap they uh, catch themselves themselves a man and then get pregnant. <laughs> she got pregnant, uh, and uh, she gave birth to a, a, a girl in uh, 1987. Uh, in, in the month of May, uh, June, 1st of June. And that changed my life. I was not prepared for that. So, But I'm seeing this little girl grow up. I watch her, uh, you know, take her first steps. And, and, you know, she had the biggest eyes and nice curls, a very, very pretty girl. And I, I, I've always had a... Uh, a, a great liking for pretty girls. Right? This was my daughter. And uh, without really being aware of it, I fell in love with her. A big time. It was, uh, I think, at that point, that was the point when when I became a human being. You know, because I, uh, up until that point, I was a very a much of an egomaniac, even though I wanted to help the world, but it was really all about me, you know. Mm. I'm I'm the special guy, uh, you know. I I get to do things that almost nobody else can, and I'm eventually going to have decent money and have a good life. It was all about me. Uh, I mean, I left my German wife to spy in, in, in the Soviet Union. I could have at that point could have said, you know, maybe I shouldn't. So, so I fall in love with this girl, and she was 18 months old when the the KGB. Got, was spooked. Uh, somehow they got some information through some channel that indicated that I uh, I was uh, in danger of being caught. Uh, and uh, they decided to uh, implement uh, the emergency procedure. So there was a particular plan that we had in case I had to run. Either I find out myself that I'm in danger or they're telling me. The procedure was as follows. I had uh, emergency documents, a driver's license, uh, there may, may have been a secondary document, uh, Canadian, uh, that I buried in a park in, in north of Manhattan someplace. I was supposed to uh, retrieve the documents and make a beeline to Canada going across the, uh, I think it's called the Friendship Bridge uh, at Niagara Falls. I had tested, uh, they, they asked me to test how easy it was to cross. And in those days, you didn't even have to show documents. You just walked. So, and then make my way to uh, Ottawa, where I would uh, get in touch with a diplomat there, a KGB agent, and they would uh, extricate me out of Canada. Straightforward, right? Wow. Now, that was so, and I would have to set a signal telling them that I'm I'm uh, I'm starting the emergency procedure. We had two signal spots. 
Uh, one was for me to put a signal. That was some some place in Manhattan, and it was under a bridge, and uh, it was next to a highway. When the the when the the, the 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 Soviets lived in the north of Manhattan, and they would drive to work uh, a certain road, and they would pass by that spot every day. So if I I place a red dot, you know, a paint red dot on that spot, that means they would be alerted that I'm I'm on the run. The other uh, spot was for them to put signals there and for me to read, and that was on my way to work, on a on a um, on a support beam for the A train that ran above ground uh, uh, in that part of town. And uh, one morning, it was um, in December. I went to when I was going to work. It was still dark. So I go down, and you know, as usual, I just take a peek and not expecting anything. And there was this red dot. Um, may I use the S word? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> because it's the internet. That, that is that is what popped into my head. Oh shit! See, at that point, I was still trying to figure out. One day, I need to go back. They will call me back. How do I take care of this girl? So that was what that red dot meant. The red dot meant emergency. You're out. Um, yeah, actually, it it meant, if you read this, you just don't go home, uh, don't don't pack your bags, just make a beeline, collect the uh, the documents, and get out of there. Wow. Yes. And you had documents buried in a park. Yes. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, after and, and that was then nine years later when the FBI, when I started working with the FBI, we went and I found the documents that were still there. Oh, my uh, God. They, it wasn't really buried. There was a, a park bench that was broken and, you know, the, the concrete uh, things on both ends that, that hold the, the, mm-hmm. the board, there was one of those concrete elements it was still standing there without anything. So I pulled it back and put the document underneath. And, wow. and nine years later, we're still there. Wow. <laughs> that helped with my credibility for, by, with the FBI, you know. <laughs> so you saw this red dot. Yeah. And, and I said, oh, shit. And because I wasn't ready to go. I, I had not found a way to take care of this girl who I loved dearly. Uh, because her, be, Yes. Her name, name is Chelsea. Uh, she's 34 now. Yeah, same year. Uh, she was born a month before me. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, and her mother was poorly educated. She had, I think, four four years of, of formal education. Uh, Ch- Chelsea would have uh, grown up in poverty, no, no doubt in my mind. And I, I couldn't stand that thought. So I just decided to ignore the dot. Now, I told you... I was always a risk taker. Mm-hmm. Obviously, was a risk if they, if if the KGB was right, and I hang around for some some more days, the FBI will come knock on the door and I wind up in jail. Right. Right. Uh, so I go to work. That day, I really didn't get anything done. I was just staring on uh, uh, at my computer monitor and do nothing. And then I go home and I didn't sleep well. And I was just still thinking, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So I play for time. Uh, and uh, oh, and so the dot was on a Monday. On Thursday was my regular, uh, there was a regular day when I listened to shortwave transmission every Thursday. 
mm-hmm. for 10 years mm-hmm. in 915. Okay. And what uh, was the purpose of this? Well, that was when uh, that was how they communicated with me. Oh, okay. I never met uh, another agent. Uh, I never met my handler in the United States. You know, you see that in the movies. Doesn't didn't happen with us. Okay. That was forbidden. It was too dangerous. Anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm I'm dialing the frequency. I'm listening. I decrypt the message, and it says, in so many words, uh, we have reason to believe that the FBI is investigating you. Uh, you know, start, start emergency procedures Im- immediately, uh, blah, 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 and th- that was the end. <sighs> okay, so reason to believe. They weren't really convincing. They didn't tell me exactly what the reason was. So I thought there was some hope, and uh, I was still paying for time. I was still trying to figure out what to do, what to do. Uh, and um, I also started uh, some to take some measures to find out whether I'm being under investigation. There's somewhere some some things that you can do in your apartment where you when something is moved that people when they look through stuff that is not in the same space anymore. Mm. Same, so is I, stuff that you were that was you were trained. No, no, no? I, I made that up. You know, it's, <laughs> okay, okay. There wasn't, but but I was trained to do one thing, and and I did that too, uh, to find out how uh, your mail is being opened. So you you uh, you write a letter to yourself with a fictitious address, and you know write something in there. And when you close the envelope, you don't you leave blank spaces in the glue. All right, so you close it, and but there's a couple of spots, maybe an inch each, where the where it isn't glued, because the generally mail is opened uh, by machines, and then it's closed automatically with machines so when when you get this letter and it's fully glued you know you got a problem <laughs> wow okay wow and one other thing is I, I did you know i uh i was extremely well trained to find out whether somebody's following me so i took a day off and i was wandering and wandered around in new york city and i saw absolutely no sign that anybody was following me and and because i got feedback of, uh, in my training in moscow from from the 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 head of this this department a guy was really really good he said he he gave me a compliment he said i was one of the best he ever worked with so that gave me more certainty that uh they may be wrong mm-hmm. so at least gave me more time to 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 play for time because at this point the the KGB didn't know that I received the messages. I could have been in a hospital, right? Or right. my radio was broken. Right. Um, because one time I actually had a an injury and for like three weeks I could not uh, do anything my, because my right arm was in a sling. Um, but then they uh, went to the extreme and did something that they normally wouldn't do. Uh, so on my way to work, uh, there was again it was a a dark summer um, uh, winter morning. I'm waiting for the A train on the elevated platform, and uh, from my right comes uh, a short man in a black trench coat, and he comes really close. There weren't too many people around. It was early in the morning. And he whispers in my ear, you got to come home or else you're dead. And then he walked away. Now, <laughs> people think it was a threat. Maybe 
20%, but 80% chance was that, you know, he was a Russian. He spoke with an accent. He didn't quite understand what that phrase means. Your debt, you don't say it in this context because then it could be taken literally. I can say to you, you know, if you, if you, if you do this, you're dead. It means you could lose your job, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, right. it's a metaphor right. or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, it but seems like you just didn't want to believe. You just didn't want to I didn't leave. want to believe that this was a threat. Right. <laughs> it, it could have been, but uh, whatever. Uh, but here's the point. Now, they knew that I knew so there was no more playing for time. Uh, in the next radio, in the next radio transmission, they uh, um, called me to uh, implement a dead drop operation. That's when, when somebody drops something over there that that has maybe money or a passport in it, some kind of a container, and you go pick it up. Mm. That's the that's the real short description. Right. And they were actually, they changed the emergency procedure. They were going to me in, in, uh, uh, to, to give to me in an in a old rusty, rusty old oil can uh, travel money and a passport to get out, still uh, across uh, to Canada. I still hadn't made a decision, uh, but at least I was going to get the money, right? <laughs> so, and, and, and then, then I knew I would have to make a decision rather quickly. So here's what... what, what what happened, which is the most odd thing in my entire career as a as an agent, uh, the uh, the uh, operation was in a park in Staten Island. Uh, the spot where the container was to be placed, I found, I described, I knew exactly how to go there. I knew, uh, and I was told with regard to uh, these types of operations, I was also very good. They actually use some of my descriptions to teach others how to uh, describe a, a spot so it can be found. Mm. So, I, and it was, this was in the dark for some reason. It's the only time we did this in the dark. And um, I, I, I go to Staten Island and there was a spot where uh, a signal was to be placed that told me uh, you can go and get the container. I did it. I put it there. The signal was there, so I walk into the park, and there was uh, supposed to... What type of signal was it? It's a chalk mark. Okay. Real okay. simple. Okay. Um, and I get to that tree with a hollowed bottom. Uh, it was really, really easy to find, and there was no oil can. I said, what the heck's going on here? I did a double take. I wandered around a little bit. Maybe he just, like, dropped it, and it... And it uh, it was gone. I couldn't. I, I couldn't find the container. So as I walked away from from that uh, failed operation, it said in here, "I'm staying." Really? You see this? How how uh, imbalanced this was? Because obviously there was. I was in danger in some way. Uh, and if I uh, disobeyed the uh, the command from the center, I could have been in danger if, um, if, um, through the KGB, right? Mm -hmm. Because they, I knew they did not uh, treat defectors very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, all the good things for me were back 
behind the Iron Curtain, the, the wall hadn't come down yet. That took another year. I, I just knew that I had a lot of dollar savings, and I had a wife and a child, and, and the, the Russians even promised me once I'm done, they promised to give me a house, which is, was a rarity in, in, the, in the communist world. So everything good was over there, and everything not good was over here. The only thing that, that was the counterweight was a smile of an 18-month-old girl. And in here it said, I'm staying and so now the people always ask, "How did you? How did you do this? How did you manage?" You know, brilliant. It's another thing that just popped into my head. Oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm making up a story. I, I so I sat down the next day. I wrote a letter in secret writing and told them, unfortunately, I can't, I can't come because I've, I have HIV/AIDS. And uh, that was a as good a lie as I could have come up with because they believed it. Really, they had no reason to not believe it. They didn't know I had a child. They didn't know I was married in the United States. They didn't know any of this. They didn't know what has, was going on in my head. Mm. They all, all they knew this. Yeah, man, I get to go back and uh, you know be celebrated as a hero because my uh, ten years were considered a success. I the year before I received the second highest decoration of the Soviet Union. Wow. Yeah. So they believed it. They believed it so well that they went to my German family and told them that I had passed away uh, from this dreaded disease. Wow. I didn't know that they believed this until I was able to reconnect with Germany. That's when I was told what happened. So for the next three months, I was very careful not to be predictably in the same spot at the same time. Mm. So I would go to work at different times. I would go zigzag. Uh, you know, I just like was unpredictable. And after I had already decided that the FBI wasn't wasn't going coming after me, and and after the three months, I said, "Well, I'm in the clear now. I'm going to live out my life as an American with uh, this uh, new family over here." And uh, a year later, I bought a house, and then we had another child. So. That was, uh, my future was, I was going to have a nice career in information technology and uh, then retire, play golf, uh, but never go back to Germany for sure uh, and never be able to travel outside of the United States because the one thing I w would have avoided is to apply for a passport again. So uh, you were okay with not seeing your original wife with, and your yes, first child? Yes, uh, I had this this really artificially split personality. When I was here, I was Jack Barsky, so I I really there, there were no thoughts about Germany in me, in me, left in me. And when I was back home, I was Albrecht Dietrich. It's really weird, yeah. uh, and that's when I uh, I told you that occasionally when a German word pops into my head, I can't find the English because there is no real good connection between the English and the German in, in my head. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, and uh so um and then 9 years after I resigned, the FBI found me and so that's that changed my life again. How did that happen? Well, there's this fellow uh the arch there was an archivist at, in the Get this thing a little closer to. You you can scoot it. There was an archivist uh, uh in the in the KGB uh, who was in charge of moving the archive from the Red Square from Lubyanka 
to a new uh, facility outside of Moscow. And as he was doing this, he had access to all kinds of secret documents, and he was pissed off at, at, at the Soviet Union. He really wanted, he was trying to find a way to do maximum damage. So he uh, copied, hand-copied notes over many years, smuggled them out in his underwear or in his socks, uh, buried them in his, in his dacha, eventually eventually transcribed them, and one day he showed up with five suitcases worth of documents at uh, the British embassy in um, in one of the Baltic republics. That was after the Soviet Union, Union had uh, had collapsed, but, mm. you know, if they the Russians had found him, he, they would have given him the death, death penalty. And amongst those documents, there was uh, a brief note that there was an illegal by the name of Jack Barsky living in the northeast of the United States. And since Barsky is not a very common name, the FBI pretty soon figured who that was. It was me. And I think the uh, the, the confirmation that they uh, received was, yeah, the fellow got his uh, social security card when he was like what, in his mid-30s. So, yeah, that's, that's him. Uh, it took him three years to actually introduce themselves. And I understand why. Because all they knew was that I wasn't illegal and I was extremely well trained because I had survived in the United States 19 years mm -hmm. without being caught. So the concern was that I was still active or I or I was at least still, you know, a sleeper who could be woken up any time. Uh, that was at the time when I was telling you about uh, Aldrich Ames and and uh, and uh, Robert Hansen, the, the two very dangerous and uh, damaging agents that were in the CIA and in the FBI. They were concerned that I might be running yet another one of those agents in in the U.S. government. So, and knowing that I was very well trained, they kept away. They watched me from a distance. They didn't really come close except for uh, coming to my house at night and uh, taking the garbage out and replacing it with other garbage and then go, going through my garbage. Wow. <laughs> and at one time when my, uh, I left, uh, we left the house, a family, uh, to go to Toronto to visit uh, my wife's brother, they uh, installed a listening device in my kitchen. And this was the moment when I got busted. So one day my wife and I had an argument in the kitchen and she was really, you know, she, she treated me as if I was an enemy, as if I wanted to, you know, do harm to her. I don't want to get into the psychological background. It was just an argument back and forth. And I decided to use the nuclear option. I, I said to her, listen... I'm 100% on your side. I'm I'm as supportive as anybody could be. I took a significant risk by staying here because I used to be a, a Soviet agent and uh and I uh I was called home and uh, I decided to stay because I love you and Chelsea. So <laughs> the FBI listened to that confession. They had it on tape. God. Right, <laughs> and uh, 
And as far as the nuclear option, it backfired because uh, now now my wife uh, was thinking to herself, I can't trust this guy at all. He's, he was a secret agent, right? <laughs> so that didn't work very well. Uh, oh, it, she didn't even know. No, she didn't. Oh, no, I kept it from her. As a matter of fact, when we, when we moved in together, I found an apartment where there were three rooms and a kitchen were at one end of a, uh, of a, of a corridor and at the other end there was one, one room. And I said to her, this is my office. When I'm in here, I cannot be disturbed because I'm doing like complicated stuff on the computer. And she observed that. This is where I did my, my spy work while she was in, in the other end of the same apartment. Wow. <laughs> So, so how long did it take the FBI to confront you? Uh, after, after they, from the moment they found me, that they knew that is the guy that we are, we're after about three years. Uh, and, and that came pretty soon after they got uh, the confession on tape. And, and the fellow who is now a good friend of mine convinced headquarters that uh, he had seen enough. He watched me from a distance, and he had seen me interact with my wife. He had seen me interact with my children, and he came to the conclusion that I loved my children. There were some problems between me and the wife, and he figured that because of the, the love for my children, I would absolutely cooperate, and mm-hmm. he, he, he convinced the uh, uh, headquarters, and so they said, okay, look, say hello, and he was 100% right, you know, I... After the first surprise, you know, after they say FBI, you know, we want to talk with you. Oh my God, Jonathan! Huh. Uh, I caught myself rather quickly, though, um, and um, I I told them when we sat down in a motel, the first thing that I told them says, "I am fully aware that the only way out of this for me and my family is if I 100% cooperate. I have no reason to lie." And I will cooperate, and you can give me a lie detector test, and uh, you can double check some of the information that I give you. I will not lie to you. And uh, I, I have a pretty convincing way of communicating what I think, and I th- and and that that was a good start. And then we did like six weeks worth of debriefing sessions. Eventually, uh, there was a, a polygraph test. And I failed one question. Really? Yeah. Which question? Uh, I don't remember the question, but you know when the the uh, the guy who who ran the test he he took the material and you know he, they have all these little graphs that they look at. He went to a room and a half hour later he said, you know, it, it looks pretty good, but you failed this one question. And I said, which one? And I f- forgot the phrasing. It wasn't so much the phrasing. Uh, at, at one point. I, I, a light went up here and said, this has a double negative. He said, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so I had to go back another day, answer the same question uh, with, without the double negative. And uh, many years later, it occurred to me that was a uh, uh, test of the validity of the, the entire Mm. procedure right because i had to fail that one right and the the polygraph is so damn sensitive and i ran this by some of my kind of like a baseline y- yes my some of my my fbi friends and they said yeah he 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 wanted to he he that was a check on his own uh judgment 
and it was it was true, you know. <laughs> now, during now, what year was this that you finally got caught by the FBI and cooperated? It, 88 plus 9, 97. Okay. 97. Mm-hmm. So during your years when you were still working with the KGB, did you ever have any communication or any kind of run-ins with Vladimir Putin? No, no. Vladimir... Uh, was he working in Germany at he, that time? Yeah, he, he, he was stationed in Germany in a, in a city that was, uh, is a, about 60 miles from where I grew up. I grew up in a, in a small village, but that was one of the closest cities. He got there in 85. I was already here for in okay. 85. Okay, so you never had any sort of communication. Um, but uh, just to, to volunteer some information about what he did there, uh, he would have been the kind of person that, let's say, if I study in Dresden, it's a good possibility that he would have been the one who I uh, would be working with. Because the fellow that uh, worked with me uh, was such, was a generalist, you know. They in in these outposts, they didn't do a lot of espionage work. It was East Germany. Who you don't spy on the East Germans, right? Mm-hmm. You maintain a relationship with the Stasi. Um, you may meet somebody from West Germany who comes to visit, or you may actually, you know, operate as a courier for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But most of the work was uh, maintenance, bureaucratic work, and working with trainees like me. Right. And so this is what Putin did. I guarantee you, he was mid-level. He wasn't even in charge. Right. Uh, and so the the myth that uh, is floating around about Putin, the 10-foot-tall KGB agent, is, is exactly that. It's a myth. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of Americans have bought into this. Uh, a lot of uh, top-level politicians would, and, and journalists. Uh, when I first got interviewed about this Ukraine thing, uh, the, the interview always started, so how did the KGB, uh, the time in the KGB, enable Vladimir Putin to do what he's doing now and I, I, my answer is not at all. Right. The only thing that helped him, uh, having been a, a member of the KGB, he networked with people who, when when the Soviet Union went bust, and when the industry was privatized, and when there was politics that you could get into, guess who who, who had the best chances? Because the KG, KGB hired nothing but you know the top top people, the elite. And KGB actually, a lot of KGB knew how the West functions and how you can, you know, become a capitalist or an oligarch. Mm. So this this network, uh, there's still re- residues of that network that works with, with Vladimir. But all the other stuff that this his ability to manipulate and play chess and, uh, and uh, intimidate and be brutal, that's, that didn't that was not developed in the KGB. Do you think it's possible that the person that Vladimir Putin is today is, do you think it's possible that that's a result of the United States constantly <clears throat> trying to destabilize Russia since, you know, for decades and constantly, you know, antagonizing Russia and doing all the things that we've done? You know, you could talk about like the coup in the Ukraine and you know, putting anti-ballistic <clears throat> missiles and or, or defense missiles that could 
easily be transitioned into offensive missiles all throughout NATO and pushing them and push backing him into a corner, so to speak. Do you think it's possible that who he's become today is an effect of all of that history? It's an excellent question. Um, first of all, just to, to uh, lay the foundation, uh, in the Russian national psyche, there is a lot of uh, paranoia about being attacked because Russia, since its found founding, has always been attacked from the north, the Vikings, from from the east, the Mongol hordes, and from the west, Adolf Hitler, the south. It was, there was always war. And uh, so there is, a, there is a reasonably based fear amongst Russians and most likely Vladimir Putin of, you know, being under attack. Right. Um, Vladimir Pozna, I don't know if, you, if that name uh, rings a bell. He's a, he's a bilingual, he's actually trilingual. He speaks fluent and almost accent-free Spanish, uh, uh, French, uh, German, and uh, uh, no, Russian and French, Russian and, and English. He, uh, during the time of the Cold War, uh, he uh, ran a program on, on U.S. television with, uh, with, a talk, with a very, very famous talk show host whose name uh, I can't remember. Uh, Vladimir Pozno knew his stuff, and he knows his stuff. And he is not necessarily Russian-Russian, and he's not anti-American. He has a, a higher level of view. And uh, he gave a lecture at Harvard University maybe three, four years ago, and I watched it on YouTube, and he points out that, uh, yes, there is at least, uh, there is at least part, part of what's going on right now can be attributed back to the actions and the words of, of the United States. Now, I also believe that Putin may not necessarily believe the entire story, but he's using it like because his people believe it. Mm. You know, you have you 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 know the uh, NATO expanded right into the border of uh, uh, Russia, and we're not really admitting this right now in the open. This I don't know. I haven't heard any American politician to even address this in some way. I am thinking it is not. Uh, it was inevitable. I'm thinking it contributed, and I'm thinking again it had something to do with the lack of understanding how Russia operates. And Posner pretty much made the same, the same case in, in his uh, in his address to Harvard. Mm. And another another interesting, like I mentioned to you earlier, watching the the six hour of sit down interviews between Vladimir Putin and Oliver Stone, is it seems like he does have the best interest for Russia, like whether he's putting on a tremendously, a tremendous act and being a tremendous, you know, being unbelievably deceptive and manipulative and putting on a show, you know, if that may be the case, then, you know, it is what it is, but it seemed like I was convinced that, you know, he does have the best, the best in mind for Russia and, again talking about his perspective of the united states it seemed to be sound 
for what it's for what it's worth it seemed like it was very logical and uh, you know he's a guy who has to deal with a new president every four years and he watches this cycle happen every four years and in his perspective on every you know during every u.s election cycle they have to demonize russia it's what they do we're used to this from the united states and it, it just seems kind of like it seems kind of silly in a sense like from his perspective, looking back at the United States, it's kind of like they're just pl- they're playing games. I'm trying to run this country as it sh- you know as it should be. But again, you know that's only one, one perspective. There's a lot of thoughts that uh, came to my mind as he was speaking. First of all, he's not stupid, and 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 unless unless he ignores history, he should know that the United States, other than in Vietnam. It's not a, has not been an aggressive country. We went to, into Kuwait and withdrew. We went into uh, Iraq and withdrew. We didn't take any oil out. Uh, so when, when you're talking about playing games, yeah, he, he should know that these are games, right? And it's, that American politicians have a big mouth and they, and they always want to blame... Uh, Russia and 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 paint Russia as as the main enemy, which is not the case anymore. By the way, now everybody pretty much agrees that China is the is, is the biggest adversary. So there's there's some cynicism, I believe, under uh, in in Vladimir's head. Uh, also, one one other thing I want to say, um, regardless of what the, what the contribution of American foreign policy and military policy was, this does not excuse. Mr. Putin uh, 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 going after an, a sovereign country mm. and killing innocent civilians. And oh, by the way, if he really is so concerned about uh, Russian people, you know, he's he's killed quite a few Russians in the Ukraine, for sure. Mm. And um, his, uh, I didn't watch the interview, but there is an article that he wrote he probably didn't write it, but he put his name under it, where he clearly lays out what his goal is in life, and it is rebuilding greater Russia, uniting all the Russians that originally were part of, you know, the when when Russia was formed, it was uh, the organization was called Rus, R-U-S, and they had Ukrainians and Russians and other uh, nationalities mixed in, and then throughout history and with all these wars, you know they 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 split up and then the soviet union came back and and united them all by force very often and then the soviet union collapsed and uh, now now what what vladimir putin wants to do is recreate a cultural uh, unified russia a paradise for the russian orthodox sort of religion and uh, and culture uh, and make it all good for all russians mm. As a, but but there's obviously there's a a strong uh, personal uh, impetus at work here. He also wants to build for himself a monument that could could be put next to Peter the Great. He wants to he, he wants to recreate the Soviet Union, right? I I say Russia, Greater Russia, not greater the Soviet okay. because there are in the Soviet Union there are about a handful of uh, Asian uh, republics that were that are have a, an Asian population. He's mm-hmm. not so much interested in the Asians, mm-hmm. and that possibly would uh, create a conflict with China anyway. 
Uh, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, the Baltic republics were at once part of Russia. Mm. And they have quite a few Russians still living there. Uh, you know, the, the Ukrainian language is very close to the Russian language. I understand sometimes when they talk, the Ukrainians, I understand what they're saying. And the culture, they have, they have the same orthodox religion. Uh, Poles, you can count in, 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 into that group. And he, he wants to create the Russian Empire. The, in, in that article, the focus is on Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, not so much getting bigger and like mm. uh, occupy the world and making greater Russia uh, the third uh, big power on the planet, the way the Soviet Union was the second. Mm. Let me ask you this. Why not, why, if you're the United States, why not let, why not encourage Ukraine to make a deal with Russia and give Russia half of Ukraine? Or, or at least, why not let Russia take Ukraine? Wouldn't Russia make, wouldn't, if Ukraine was part of Russia, wouldn't it make Ukraine more stable? Uh, well, the concern is that uh, if if you if if you allow uh, Putin to take over without taking any losses, that he would would then have an appetite and the ability to go further, mm. and then we got you know NATO countries in right. in play. Right? Uh, isn't that sort of his buffer? Isn't the Ukraine sort of his buffer between NATO? In a nuclear age, that doesn't make a difference. I think you know. This is, I think it's it's vastly exaggerated. You know mm-hmm. whether you you know you can, you can fire an intercontinental missi- missiles from the United States and and hit Moscow. True. You don't have to be in Kiev. Um, I, uh, um, I I've I, I've had the same thought. You know, we we need to the the most important thing, and I I agree with uh, the Biden administration uh, policy in this respect. The most important thing is to avoid a nuclear disaster right. because that would <laughs> there's no good solution, but this one would be the worst mm. right and i'm I'm concerned that uh, um, there is a real danger that it might happen not necessarily because somebody purposely launched a nuclear weapon when everything is in high alert stage uh when emotions are high and and mistakes can be made, mm. and I'm, I have no real information about it, but I, I'm concerned about the, uh, how well maintained the Russian arsenal is. Really, <laughs> I've lived in Moscow for two years. The Russians, uh, as far as industry, do not produce quality, no matter what they touch, even their. Uh, um, don't they the, have like the biggest nuclear submarines in history of the world? Yeah, like, but they are not necessarily all high quality. They, right. they, they're they're spaceships. Uh, they're not excellent. Mm. They function, right? So uh, they, I'm, I would, I, it's my guess that uh, uh, the American nukes are much much better maintained and uh, less prone to potential accidental misfiring. What do you think? I mean, he's already killed a a handful, I mean, thousands of thousands of people in Mm -hmm. the Ukraine, I mean, including his own armies. There's been thousands of Russians that have been killed. Um, It wouldn't be much. I don't imagine it would be that far of a stretch for him to drop like a tactical nuke that would kill 100,000 people. I, I don't. I have no idea. What? Uh, oh, sorry. That's oh, my that's phone. Okay. That's okay. 
what I mean, what do you think would happen? What would be the next if, if well, that I, was to happen? I, I don't. Do know, I to? I have no idea how how many lives and tactical nuke could uh, destroy. But let's just assume whatever it is, and you kill a hundred thousand people. I I'm afraid I I pass. <laughs> this this is a wild guess. Uh, because now if you're the decision... And, and who is the decision maker? Is it the American president or is it NATO commando? The decision ma- there are multiple decision makers. Uh, would they decide to wipe out Russia? Would they let it go? Or would they just shoot one missile at one of the big cities in, in Moscow and then send, uh, send an urgent message if we've got to stop it now? I don't know, but if that starts, I don't know how to stop it. Right, and, 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 and then that's a that's a scary scenario, but possible. I I just I hope and pray that uh, somehow uh, uh, Zelensky will give enough for Putin to be able to go back home and declare victory, mm. because right now he doesn't look so good, you know. Uh, because it's not going as as, as well as uh, he thought it would be going, and there's a good chance that five generals were already killed. There's a good chance that the the military is not happy with him. So you know, dictators are not immortal. I mean, if you could imagine, like, put the shoe on the other foot. Imagine that the Russians install some sort of leader in Mexico and they all of a sudden start funneling a billion dollars of weapons and jets and stuff. We didn't install Zelensky. Okay. But the guy before Zelensky. No, they're all home homegrown. They were all homegrown dictator types, uh, very similar to the ones that the system was very similar to to the one in Russia, and uh, and at the time when when people were talking about it, honestly, more corrupt. It was a model of corruption, mm-hmm. and and with regard to uh, the industry, the percentage of uh, the gross national product uh, that is uh, um, that is controlled by oligarchs is very similar in Russia and in Ukraine, even though r- Russian economy is ten times bigger. But they're both oligarchies even today. Mm. Uh, I this this was not the United States doing, uh, and and the whole idea of, of bringing Ukraine into NATO. Not the, let's say war's over, and uh, they want to be a member of the NATO. We can't we can't have an oligarchy and dictatorship and uh, in, in, as member of NATO. That's a misfit. Uh, and how Zelensky eventually will turn out leading a country in peacetime, we don't know. We don't know. Are you familiar with after the 2014 revolution or coup, whatever you want to call it, the, there was a recorded phone call with Victoria Newland and another um, high up senator or something in the U.S. There was a recorded phone call between them and Victoria Newland is talking about two people and who would be the best fit to be the president of the Ukraine next and she's basically saying yes i think we think this guy's the best fit we just need to sign off from biden who is who is victoria newland victoria newland is the lady who was just interviewed in front of congress the other day by um 
I think it was Marco Rubio talking okay, about okay. chemical weapons being in the Ukraine. Right, she's been right. she's been deeply involved with the Ukraine for a very okay. long time. Neoconservative, her husband's a neoconservative. Okay, um, her husband is uh, Robert Kagan. Okay, and there was a there well, was a recorded phone call with her talking about who would be the next best fit for president of the Ukraine after that coup. Well, okay, but that's talk and. It, uh, it, it, I don't think it is possible for the American government to install a, a president in a country like Ukraine. Do you think during that, during that revolution, um, when the opposition was going up against um, the police force of the Ukraine, the, the, are you aware of like the, the snipers and all the people that were, get, that were getting killed? There was oh, police, sure. The, there was the, the war was ongoing. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I, I told you about uh, uh, the, the journalist uh, who, who told me who, who was in charge, who was the, uh, the correspondent for, for um, The Guardian, he wrote a book. It's called uh, "The Long Hangover," and mm. that has a lot. Uh, a lot of stuff is in there about the ongoing back and forth between uh, U- Ukraine or within Ukraine and Russia and so forth. And and it, it it was deadly for a long time. There is no hint in in his writing that the Americans had really anything to do with it. The guy is really good. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. If, if we could find it, Austin, could you find the YouTube video uh, of the recorded phone call with Victoria Newland talking about the next leader of Ukraine? Uh, and she, she mentions Biden. No, Biden was not in the picture. He was the vice president. It was, Obama was the president. He was the vice president at that time. Okay, in, and, in and Biden was in charge of Ukraine. Yes. Yes, I... Uh, I remember that now. And then he had his son. His son was a board member of one of the big energy companies mm-hmm. that was formed right, in right. the Ukraine. Prices so fast forward. Island, and there was a phone call. That was there, here it is. Okay. It was a call between Full screen. Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Newland, and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. Questions of credibility are being raised after a private chat between two top U.S. diplomats was leaked online. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yats and Yuk, it's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I, think that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. Good. Well, do you want us to try to set up a call with him? Sullivan's come back to me uh, VFR saying you need Biden and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deeds to stick so okay. Biden's willing so you had this remarkable phone call where you have these two senior officials of the US government apparently talking about a coup or how they were planning to restructure the government of Ukraine fuck the EU no exactly I'm not saying the whole <laughs> fuck the EU feels that way the, there's, there is division on this but the neoconservative element wants very much to change the strategic dynamic in Eastern Europe. By the way, this documentary was just banned from YouTube last week. This is an Oliver Stone documentary. Oh, really? Yes. So, you know, when when I hear neocons being involved, uh, the whole story has more credibility because uh, the neocons, and, and I think they... 
they're not they weren't they're not all republicans uh, right this is no yeah hillary they're, clinton they're yes they're warmongers and on both sides and and they're they're hawks and they're irresponsible. And you want to know something crazy about that lady, Victoria Newland? Her husband, if you could Google her husband, Robert Kagan, one of the biggest advocates of the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, the documentary is fascinating, and it goes into the whole the whole thing. And they talk about agent provocateurs being a part of that revolution in Ukraine, killing cops and killing Ukrainian cops and killing. Um, parts of the resistance that that sounds very similar to some of the worst uh, activities that uh, was conducted by the cia for instance in chile right uh yep and, uh, i mean that was that was ho- it's horrendous. the cia playbook right yes and uh that was not supposed to be repeated now if, if this <laughs> uh, if this grows this is could be, become one of the biggest scandal in the history of the United States, but yeah, we don't have enough to go by as to whether they actually followed through on the talk. Mm-hmm. There's the you know signals, yeah, and then Biden Biden was in charge of Ukraine, but right. but but Biden was never a hawk, was he? I don't think so. Um, yeah, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and uh, you don't know what whether Barack Obama had an, a an independent opinion. Uh, whether they saw eye to eye on these things, mm. hey, he's, you're scaring me. But I'm I'm at the edge of uh, my my sandbox that says competence. Right. Well, in the interviews, you know, he he talk, he discusses this with Putin, and Putin is very much aware of all of it, and he says, you know, this is what we're used to. This has been going on forever. Um, during that revolution, he let the forget the name of the current president that was there. He let him go to Russia. Um, and the EU-backed president came and then took over, um, took over Ukraine. Anyways, and then and then, you know, it's scary. It's 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 dark. <laughs> but 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 then you take the the article that he was. It's uh, about six thousand words. It's a pretty lengthy, rather uh, elaborate article about his plans. Uh, that doesn't say anything about. You know, responding to the, the to the evil uh, United States, it says right. this is my vision. Right. So that vision was there before. True. And and even even if uh, we monkeyed in the Ukraine, that still does not excuse what Putin has done to innocent women and children. Right. There is no justification for that. Now, we're doing. What are what is the U.S. doing specifically, like seizing the yachts of these oligarchs and going after the oligarchs? How does that cripple or how does that hurt Putin? Uh, no, the uh, oligarchs, well, <laughs> yeah, they become somewhat feckless once once they all leave the country. If if they are actually in in opposition to the war, uh, they may lose control of what they currently still control in in, in Russia. Uh, I think what 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 hurts more is uh, uh, sh- uh, limiting the ability of, of Russia to uh, be involved in international commerce. Mm. I mean, they already have shortages all over the place. Right, right. Uh, and no Wi-Fi. And, I mean, they don't have. They can't go to the grocery store. They can't yes. watch Netflix. And uh, they can't go to McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this is inconvenience, but. Uh, 
I don't know if the entire SWIFT system has been, uh, uh, Russia has locked, been locked out of that. If so, they can't do any commerce. in uh, mm. Because, you know, have you ever made money abroad? No. So in, <laughs> I have <laughs> euros, right? Mm-hmm. So you you need to get a SWIFT account to get money transferred right. from, from there to here. Mm-hmm. So this, this is, SWIFT is the system that enables international commerce. And I think at least partially it has been blocked uh, to the extent the um, Europe still buying gas and oil uh, that may still be be working. But but the Russians are feeling it. Mm-hmm. And in uh, in in his most recent speech, uh, Putin has acknowledged it, and he said, "Well, yeah, this we're going to have this, this, and this is all going to be pretty bad, but we need to get through this. To uh, it's for the greater good of the country." And uh, believe it or not, most of the Russians are behind him. So if people think, you know, oh yeah, there's mass demonstrations and he will be toppled by an angry populace, not going to happen. Not going to happen. No. Because uh, uh, there has been too much uh, propaganda, whether that is new, whether that is right or has uh, has roots in, in reality or not. The 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 majority of the the Russian people believe in the propaganda that comes out of Putin's government, and that's a, it's it's an ideology. It's mm. called Russian nationalism, mm. and he's he's been pursuing that ever since he became the head of state. Um, where does in this as far as this history between the United States and Russia and the Ukraine? Where does George Soros fit into all of this? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Hasn't he? He's funded many NGOs that have been involved in the whole in the conflict in the Ukraine, um, as well as media companies. And you know, Soros to me is um, is, is is an 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 evil man who wants to uh, you know. Uh, Change the world to to his image, sort of uh, unified to some degree, but he won't be able to see it because he's so damn old. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, he, you know his history, right? You know that he, he was to an extent. To he, a small he, extent. he was a young Jewish man who cooperated with the Nazis, and when he was asked about whether he has any regrets, he said, "No, I had to do this to survive." Right. It's a cold-blooded individual, and it's it's raw power. I, I thought what he's after is uniting uh, all of the Western world in a sort of a collectivist-type system. What rule uh, Russia and even China is playing in his scheme, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You, know you, did, you did a lot of homework. <laughs> well, I mean, I used to always think, you'd always used to see, you know, I, I would hear people talk about, oh, George Soros is behind, you know, when you would see, like, the BLM marches and stuff like that, you'd hear people talk about, you know, George Soros is behind this, you know, trying to get people to cause violence. And then when I started watching these documentaries, seeing how he, he actually did create NGOs and fund media to create dissent in these other countries like the Ukraine, it starts to get get deep <laughs> dissent as far as pro-russian dissent both ways you don't have to create it it's there no, i mean not historically necessarily. there right there's there's a lot of russians living there and and remember i i i don't know if i told you in this interview uh the uh, the the hatred that ukrainians have for russians 
is based on uh, Stalin's action when when he um, uh, when he starved four million Ukrainians to death in the in the thirties. Okay, because in those days Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainians didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union, and right. particularly the uh, somewhat wealthy peasants didn't want to be collectivized. So this is what Stalin did. You know, he took the grain away from them, and and so the uh, the national conscience uh, of of Ukraine, of the Ukrainians that consider themselves as you know as part of a Ukrainian nation, mm-hmm. uh, has this incredible hatred for for everything Russian. Uh, when that happened to me when I when I was still a Soviet agent, and I met some Ukrainians while studying in college. And I, I was blown away by when when we talked about the Soviet Union, how 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 much hate came out of them. So I had to stay away from yeah. from Ukrainians. Yeah. Uh, and uh, where was I going with this? And 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 there are Russians living in the Ukraine. So so that conflict was there before Putin invaded. And it's been going on since the Soviet Union fell apart. And there are some. Nazis still living in Ukraine, quite a bit actually, right? I can, I can, I can give you one proof. I, I know, I need only one, one piece of information. You know who? Uh, uh, I forgot his first name. Pandera, um, that Bandera, was a Ukrainian Nazi. There's like statues of him, right? He's Stepan Bandera. Yes. Okay. Yes. Stepan Bandera was born in. 19 uh, big anti-communist yes and, and anti-semite anti-semite <laughs> and uh, he led a bunch of folk i mean the ukrainian nazis uh, were as murderous even even more so than the the germans and they they participated in pogroms and killed jews and all that bandera was uh, uh born in 1919 in 2019 the ukrainian government issued a commemorative stamp to honor Stepan Bandera. Mm. Enough said. Isn't that when Zelensky? Zelensky was, was not yet in, in power. No, he wasn't. Okay, uh, was not yet. But somebody high level enough thought it was a good idea to honor this this Nazi killing machine. I mean, it's crazy. It, it's it's the amount of power. Some of those those mm. I don't know what you would call them Nazi militias in the in the Ukraine that are currently there. Mm. It's like the equivalent of. It'd be like the equivalent of the KKK having its own sort of military power in the U.S. Yeah, and so what we're talking about right now is uh, it cannot be found in United States media uh, because, no. because it's too complicated. It is you too know, complicated. I think this, this, the, the entire Ukraine has been a hornet's nest for forever, and it, it would have probably been a good idea for the Western world not to meddle in this because it just isolated and let it play itself out because no good will come of it. But then you see, uh, you know, what's the incentive for the Western world to meddle in this? And what you do see is you see, you know, the stocks of companies like Raytheon going through the roof. And then you see, you know, people that are in government (laughs) investing in those stocks before this whole thing happens. And Yes, and uh, you know that. Remember that President Eisenhower, a military man, warned of the power of the military-industrial complex, and that's apparently at work here. Mm-hmm. You know, we 
we send a bunch of arms over there, they need to be replaced, right? Uh, the arms are, are, uh, are uh, the money that we give away is taxpayer money, yours and mine. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the weapons manufacturers make more money. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, it's very often when people say follow the money, that's ultimately, uh, uh, that dictates where people are going, you know. Right. Well, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to predict where it's going to go from here. Obviously, you know, it's, it's definitely becomes a lot more sensitive when we're almost kind of in another cold war. Um, are well, you are you familiar with? I'm sure you are with the the story of the Russian submarine yes. commander, yes, who was I believe he was off the coast of Cuba, right? And it was right. he was given the command to strike, yes, right? And he said that we're misinterpreting this, yes. Well, what, what is that? How there, does that there story suppo- go? The, uh, there, there, there were suppo- uh, supposed to be three individuals who have, who have to agree, or two out of the three, or, no, three generally three. But in this case, the commander had uh, a override, override power over the other two. The other two were, were going, they voted yes, and he says, I'm not doing it. And and this this was officially set up that way. I don't know exactly the background. Yes, that could have started World War Three. This one man could have prevented the nuclear apocalypse. That is correct. And uh, we might well be in a, in a similar situation going forward here. It's frightening. Yes. Terrifying. Yes. Um, well, Jack, I appreciate you coming and uh, giving us your insight. Tell our people listening and, and or watching where they can see what you're doing as far as your own podcast or the, where they can find the books that you've, you've published okay. or whatever you're, what else, what, anything else that you're doing now. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Uh, my website, there's quite a few, quite a bit of material on the website, lots of videos and some writing. Uh, it's jackbarsky.com, real simple. Uh, if you, if you can't remember it, just Google my name. It's all over the place. Uh, I, the book that was um, published five years ago is called Deep Undercover. I don't, I don't uh, care about the subtitle. And uh, last December, uh, Imperative Productions issued, uh, released a podcast, a 12-episode uh, podcast, which uh, is about my life, but it's, it's narrated, and it has a lot of voices other than mine. It's interviews who will talk about, you know, how they related to me and how they saw my situation. It is, it is very well made. It, uh, it has an, as Alden Ehrenreich, an A-list actor as a, as a narrator and professionally com, uh, composed music. It's, uh, we got nothing but, but great reviews for it. can be found on all major audio streaming platforms free of charge. That's it. That's incredible. <laughs> well, thanks again. I really, I very You're much welcome. appreciate it, and I'll include, I'll, I'll include links to, uh, to your stuff below in the, okay. in the show notes. Thanks again, Jack. Okay. Goodbye, world. <laughs>